because I do not like the idea that it's just the, the loudest voices that will win. I would, I would like the best ideas to win, but that only happens if people actually really do have equal access to knowledge about what they should be doing. Hey y'all, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. It's Ryan Williams. Each episode of this podcast, I interview an entrepreneur, business leader, or best-selling author launching the next big thing in media. I want to unravel their stories, helping us all learn with actions and lessons, with practical advice. This is a fun one with Dory Clark. It was part of her book launch event for the bestseller Entrepreneurial You, and it's all about how Dory built her business around not just one, but seven income streams. And her book, which uh, launches a bestseller, and we did this live event in Los Angeles, outlines a framework for all of us to learn from. To The future of the economy is really around having multiple revenue streams and not just relying on one traditional anchor day job. Also want to remind everyone to go to influencereconomy.com for all of my episode archives. We have 117, now 118 episodes with heavy hitter best-selling authors like Seth Godin, Brad Feld, Adam Grant. They're rare interviews, candid, with a lot of big YouTubers like Francesca Ramsey and Freddie Wong as well. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com for all of the free archives. Now, Dory Clark with episode 118. Here for the entrepreneurial you, Dory Clark, 2017 Extravaganza Book Tour. It's a lot of pressure tonight, and we'll be doing a Q&A afterwards, so please, I see some pen and paper over here, I see some books out in the field, I see some green teas in hand, um, so we're going to do a, a Q&A with Dory, just the two of us, and we'll be recording a live podcast tonight, so emphasize your laughter. <laughs> yes, okay, we, we're, we don't have enough money for an applause sign, but just if you hear this, that's, a, that's the cue to uh, start laughing and clapping. Um, but so Dory is the author of Entrepreneurial You, uh, the author of Stand Out, and the author of Reinventing You. And so you're a prolific trilogy writer. You're also a consultant. You do public speaking. You teach at the Duke School of Business, Fuqua. Uh, and uh, overall, you are all over the place. And I know that these accolades sound great and all, but when you walk into a bar or a restaurant or coffee shop and someone says, what do you do? How do you explain what you do? Well, if I, if I don't really want to talk to them, I just say, I'm a marketing consultant. And then they walk away. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the, good, the good move. If you ever need anything in your back pocket, that'll, that'll scare them away. Uh, but, but usually I, um, in fact, even today, I was um, talking to my Uber driver. And so I usually say that I, I write business books or I write career books. And that, that's kind of a a good rubric that I use. But I, I just want to mention, too, Ryan is a celebrity in his own right. He wrote a book, was it last year that last it came year, out? Last year, yeah. The, the Influencer Economy? That's right. It was great. It was a really, really good book about how to become a thought leader in your field. It was really, um, I think, very complimentary to the to the writing that I do. So I, I enjoyed it tremendously. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you were kind enough to leave an, a review on Amazon, which everyone here, I volunteer you to, to leave... Uh, Dory, an Amazon review tonight, and everyone listening to the podcast, you were approaching 100, 
And the book's been out, what, a couple days? A couple weeks. I mean, are you paying people in, <laughs> in foreign countries to, <laughs> little, you know, mechanical Turks? Because that's impressive. And so you're trending your top 10 Amazon book in a lot of the entrepreneurial categories. So congratulations on that. And ultimately, you know, let's say, let's get to the next conversation to start. Because I think a lot of people, I, I always ask this as the first guest um, interview question on my podcast, is how do you explain what you do? And the smart people have two answers. One, they have the marketing consultant, uh, I don't want to talk to you maybe uh, vibe. And the other is you write books around career and business. So what would you say next? Because if, obviously there's a lot of follow-up questions, but ultimately what do you want to define as what you do right now? The thing that gets me most excited about my work is, and, and the reason that I really think of the books that I've written as a trilogy, is that it is so hard these days for talented professionals to get heard and get noticed. I mean, we all know that there's just so much noise out there. there there's so much competition. I mean, there's people even in the audience. You know, Mike has a book coming out. Uh, Haleli has a podcast. I was on her podcast. And just strategizing and finding ways to get heard amidst all of the competition out there is so difficult. And what is sad about that is that many very good, very talented voices go unheard because they might be good at what they do, but they don't necessarily know how to play the game of breaking through because it's a, it's a very different thing. It's a very different skill set. And so in my books, I am trying to empower people to learn what the game is so that they are better equipped to be able to get their best ideas heard because I do not like the idea that it's just the, the loudest voices that will win. I would, I would like the best ideas to win, but that only happens if people actually really do have equal access to knowledge about what they should be doing. I feel like you could be talking about Twitter as well as people's careers where the loudest voices win. Because um, ultimately, online is oftentimes the Roman Colosseum where people are arguing and fighting, but so many of us do great things. And, when I read your book, I was thinking about uh, my own career where I've been passed over for raises or I've been passed over for promotions because other people could brand what they did and roll up my work into it, even though it was the opposite that was happening. So how often do you see people, they, they read what you do or it resonates with them because they feel like they're being overlooked themselves? Yeah, I think, I think it's very common. I mean, for a lot of people, we've probably all had experiences at one point or another, whether it is, you know, boss taking credit for work or just, just being underappreciated in a particular context. That's enormously frustrating. And within a corporate context, actually just a book recommendation uh, for, for folks who are into the, the business book world. Um, one of my favorites is called Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't by Jeffrey Pfeffer, uh, which is a great book about organizational dynamics and office politics. But um, for but, people listening at home, sorry to interrupt, there, there's a lot of writing going on right now. <laughs> so we're going to help Jeffrey's book. So it's called what? Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't. That's incredibly dramatic. Yes. I'm, I'm going to buy it just on that reading alone. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, for sure. But um, yeah, it's. Um, I, I think we, we've all been been subject to that, to just being underappreciated or overlooked. And every time we think back on it, it stings. And so if there's a way that we can 
fight back against that more effectively, that's, that's something that I would love to be able to help people to do. I mean, even, even now um, where you know, I've, I've published books and, and you know, done uh, different things professionally where you, know, you, you feel like to a certain extent, you know, like, oh, you, know, you, 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 sh you should have, quote unquote, uh, reached a certain level, you still get these, these moments. I remember I wrote about this one time for the, for the Harvard Business Review. Um, there was a guy that I, that I knew that ran a company and his company had this conference. It was kind of this prestigious conference. And so we had this meeting and it, it's, it seemed pretty clear to me from the context of the meeting that he thought that I would be a good speaker for his conference. And so he kind of deposited me with his staffer and he's like, oh, hey, you should, you know, so this is the staffer runs the conference. He's like, oh, you, you guys should connect. You know, Dory's great. You guys really need to, you know, have this conversation, blah, blah, blah. So he sort of connects us. And so we set up a meeting, you know, like, okay, great. So we, you know, we were like, yeah, sure, let's meet. So a couple weeks later, we have a meeting. And I had assumed that in this intervening period that he would have somehow briefed her about my background or why he was suggesting that we meet or that she might have asked him. But the minute I came into the meeting, it became very clear to me that she had no idea who I was. She had no idea why we were meeting. And you know, she was basically doing it because her boss told her to and she was kind of feeling like she was doing a magnanimous favor. And, uh, and so I w went through this, this meeting with her and I, I had come in thinking, and I think, I think even that her boss was thinking that I should be a speaker at the conference. But so, you know, I was just sort of asking her questions about her job and about the conference. And at the end of this like 30 minute soliloquy, she says, so, if you, you know, we're really looking for high profile people uh, for the conference. So if you know anyone good, feel free to suggest them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, snap. <laughs> Rejected. So, yeah. So anyway, I've never spoken at that conference. But so when we, when we get situations like that, and I realized afterwards, I sort of, it was bothering me enough that I wrote this entire piece for HBR, kind of parsing that and thinking like, what could I have done differently? How could I have you know, fix that. And I realized there actually were some things that I could have done in advance to make it go better. Um, but, uh, well, there's an expectation though of people when they have to feel like they're doing a favor yeah. for you, that there's a pressure an obligation or a necessity that they just have to stay in the room. So the second they're like, okay, I checked off that favor. Like there's nothing worse than when you feel pressured to do something. So I imagine from the beginning, you probably couldn't have won over that woman in the span of an hour. Yeah, that's, that's right, because once, once someone has that attitude about you, anything that you do, it's like, no, really, I'm special, it looks like you're begging. It's like yeah. you're, you're kind of groveling. So really, what I, what I learned is that the battle is won even before you step in the room. That's the issue. Mm -hmm. And so this is, the kind of, this is the kind of thing I try to share in my book. So for instance, um, Robert Cialdini, uh, prof uh, emeritus professor from Arizona State, has a, a great suggestion about this, which is that prior to meeting somebody for the first time, you should send an email to them a few days before the meeting. And in, in the email, you title it in advance of our meeting so that they're gonna read it, right? And basically all you need to do in this meeting, it's very, in this email. I forgot to do that tonight. <laughs> so I apologize in advance. I totally missed that one. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> no worries, no worries. You're in traffic. <laughs> right, I say that all the time. 
but uh, but so very, you know very briefly in a paragraph or two, you just say you know hey Ryan, really looking forward to meeting you on uh, on Tuesday night in advance of our meeting and to make it as efficient and effective as possible, magic words, right? Um, I wanted to, to give you a little bit of background information about, uh, about my work with regard to, you know, whatever we're, we're talking about. And so at that point, you put in a paragraph, maybe two tops, about what your background is. Essentially, this is your bio, this is your credentials, this is whatever is salient to your meeting topic. And you throw that in there, because it is under the, the framework of like, hey, let's make our meeting more effective, you're not going to be resentful that I sent right. it. But what it ensures is that even if you are too lazy or disorganized to do research about me, you will have at least <laughs> read this email. Yes. And when I walk in the door, you will know, hey, Dory has reasonable credentials. I should actually treat her with some respect. Right. That's, you, I like the word lazy. Because so many people, they don't do homework. Like I have a podcast. I get pitched. You get pitched. People email you, and they don't spend two seconds, literally two seconds, to get your name right. So my podcast, or my book's called The Influencer Economy, so I get, no joke, like at least once a month, a dear influencer, like, <laughs> comma. Where I'm like, are you kidding me? Or they put you on auto replies where they follow up every six days and they, there's so many techniques that people don't use to reach influential people. And so my, rec my advice is always to say no worries if not. So if I ask you to meet with me or I feel like you're out of my weight class as someone who's more important, I say no worries if not because that takes the pressure off you. Yeah, yeah. And even, or no need to respond. That's another good line for emails too. Because you, you don't want people to feel like they have to say yes or worse, they say no and then you blow it. Yeah. So when I invited you to this, I said, no worries if it doesn't work out. And then it worked out. Because often that's how the universe works, right? Where you want little expectation. And so ultimately, a lot of entrepreneurial you is really you know, self-generating, self-started, um, self-empowering uh, self in a way that you feel like you have a chance. And so ultimately, you know, with your current business, you talk about um, needing to get some of that course money or you know, seeing someone that made $3 million off a course and it blows your mind. Um, and ultimately, like what in your life now is entrepreneurial you? Because you have, you speak, you do courses, um, you're all over every podcast. Like if you search your, her name in iTunes, it's like a plethora, of, they like go off the page. So you know how to get the word out there about yourself. So really, like you're like Jay-Z. Like you're, a, you know, you're, you're a hyphenate. Like, you know, mogul, rapper, uh, head of Def Jam, married to Bay. You, you know, like he, JDZ does it all. I'm a businessman. Man, yeah, exactly. Comma man. That's, that's right. That, we didn't rehearse that. I mean, that's, uh, that's why you're doing stand-up at Caroline's. I, uh, I, I, the book launch was at Stand Up New York. Stand Up New York. Uh, so when, what part of your business now would you say is entrepreneurial you? Because you do do so much stuff that wouldn't have existed five years ago because of the internet and the digital age. Yeah, a lot, a lot of these things were not things that I in any way could have predicted. I remember very explicitly when I was a senior in college. When did you go to school? Smith. Okay. I was uh, really frustrated because the job that I wanted was not really a job that existed. And I didn't know what to do about that. You know, I, I had all these peers that were sort of doing the really clear thing, you know, okay, you want to be a lawyer, you go to law school, you want to be a doctor, you go to med school, like, and, and I, I just wasn't sure how to get to what I wanted to do, and I had no 
ideas. I mean, they had the internet then, but there wasn't even that much on the internet. There was like, anytime, anytime there was like a website, it was like a news story. Like, look, there's a new website. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, was, it was not a good place. Check your instant messenger. <laughs> I sent you a new website. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you, really, you couldn't get a lot of data there. Um, but, but I remember thinking, like, what I really wanted to do was to have a career that was half George Stephanopoulos and half Tony Robbins. And I wanted to somehow fit them together. And I think over time, I've been able to kind of to kind of piece that together. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. I, I made a part of what inspired Entrepreneurial U is that a few years ago, I very consciously chose to create multiple income streams in my business. This was a conscious shift in business strategy because I wanted to be more diversified. And so I now I'm up to eight income streams that I'm pursuing. Um, Let's talk about money. What, not the numbers, but what are those streams? So I, so partly, you know, marketing strategy. That's the, the original thing. Don't leave. Don't leave. Exactly. <laughs> um, executive coaching. Okay. Writing books. Doing uh, some business school teaching for the Fuqua School of Business at Duke, as you mentioned. I do uh, keynote speaking. I have an online course, the Recognized Expert course that I do, and a few others as well. I do have affiliate income from uh, partnerships that I do with, with different collaborators. And I've also started doing live events as well. What are the live events? So I've experimented with a few different formats. I did, um, my very first one was last summer. I did a one-day mastermind day. Uh, Can you explain to actually people who are listening to this? Because masterminds are this... People that know, how many people here know what a mastermind is? People have no idea what it even means. Okay, so can you give a global uh, just definition of a mastermind? Absolutely. Yeah, so this was a term that was originally popularized by Napoleon Hill, who was like a self-help writer in the 20s. And the idea of a, of a mastermind, if we take it as kind of an ongoing entity, is a group of people that you assemble, let's say, half a dozen, although it could be a little more, a little less. And it's basically a group of people that are kind of uh, an accountability circle for you. And so you go and you meet with them regularly, could be in person, could be virtual, um, could be weekly, could be monthly, you know, it varies. But the idea is that over time you get to know these people pretty well. They hold you accountable for your goals and they also provide insight and advice to you if you're having a problem in your business. So, you know, kind of a cool structure. It's like a structure. half mentorship, half peer accountability. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I did, uh, I, I did a one-day mastermind event. Okay. So, so this was not like a, a long-term thing, but it was bringing a group of like-minded people together where everybody had a chance to be on the hot seat and spend a half an hour talking about their business and their challenges, and then I would weigh in and the other participants would weigh in with their thoughts and advice and it went really well. It was just tremendous group cohesion. If you can believe it, after this one-day event, they're now having a reunion, which oh, is nice. incredible. I yeah. thought you were about to say, in nine months, someone's having a baby. <laughs> like, it was that epic of a mastermind. That, that would, would be huge. be pretty amazing, yeah, yes. It's like Woodstock for uh, <laughs> thought leadership. So <laughs> this summer, I experimented with a... By the way, I normally... Dory has great... You're a great guest. I want to interrupt. Can we give her a round of applause? Because Ooh, I, I do a lot of live events and chats, and a lot of people have terrible uh, comedy instincts. 
But the fact that you just dropped, I'm a businessman, and <laughs> did this, you can't see it on the podcast, but you flipped your finger, you have a much better timing. So thank you for being a great storyteller. <laughs> You're too kind. I don't know thank if I, you. I interrupted you, but please go. Not at all. You talk about your event and uh, yeah. So this summer I uh, experimented with a slightly you know tweaked format. Like I'm trying all different all different kinds of things. So I did uh, something called a business model intensive, which was another one day event. This was not kind of um, amorphous hot seats. This was a planned curriculum where uh, it was a little larger. It was about. 20 or 30 people, somewhere in there, and uh, they came together, and we, um, I, I w basically walked them through, in many ways, a preview of Entrepreneurial U, where we talked about different income streams and different business models and how they could apply them to their own business. So it was kind of a one-day intensive training session for people. And then the latest iteration of uh, a live event that I'm, that I'm doing is at the end of November, I'm doing a two-day mastermind retreat, which is very similar to the one that I, that I did initially last summer, uh, but it's you know small group, it's gonna be 10 people, very intensive uh, and very personalized, where over two days, people are gonna be creating their action plans for 2018 and really building a, a community with these other participants. So you said something interesting there where it was a preview of Entrepreneurial U in one of these groups. So how much, uh, like, what's the foundation for the work? I would think it's the book. But then ultimately, like, you seem to do a very good job of, you know, building this uh, thesis and this narrative and then um, being able to create opportunities, products, partnerships through courses, through masterminds, uh, through live events that are from your thesis, which is easier said than done. So how do you find the ability to, like, uh, Scott Belsky, who you interviewed for your book, and wrote Making Ideas Happen, uh, his advice is to, when you have a bunch of work and you're Jay-Z and you do a lot of hyphenate stuff, is you wanna be um, mission focused and platform agnostic. And so you have the same mission for everything you do, and how do you uh, maintain that without getting watered down where you have so many different revenue streams? Well, I think you've, you've really put your finger on it in the sense that you know, when people say, would having multiple revenue streams pull you in too many directions? The answer is yes, if you are doing wildly different things for wildly different audiences. But for, for all of my work, it is either offering related services to the same audience, so they can just go deeper or get more intensive work together, or it's providing downstream options so that if people can't afford something, it's opening up the audience. So as an example, um, someone might first get a copy of my book and read Entrepreneurial You. And, you know, it's a pretty good entry point, 20, 30 bucks. And they might decide, this is great, I wanna do more of this. So they then can upgrade and say, I wanna take the recognized expert course. So they would, you know, buy that, get involved in the recognized expert community. Maybe at that point, they say, this is amazing. I, you know, but what I'd really like is to have coaching. So they sign up for a six-month coaching program. Um, that's a very feasible chain of possibilities. It can work another way, too. Let's say I get hired for a speech at a company, and the company buys books for all the participants. Some, somebody you know, comes to that, they read the book, and they say, oh, this is great. I'll sign up for Dory's email list. And so they're on the email list. Maybe they're not really interested in my stuff, but I'm promoting you know, one of my friends who has an online course. They say, oh, that's the thing I really need. I really need the course about how to be a better speaker or whatever it is. So they sign up for that. 
and then I can earn affiliate revenue. So any way it works, you're able to sort of capture the customer value what? and provide value to them. But this sounds really hard. Like, I think it sounds like, if I were listening here, I would think this is really impressive and also very difficult. So what do you think you have in your, uh, in your psychiatrist gene pool from your father and what did you say your mom was? Uh, well, for a while she was a psychiatric nurse. So. Oh, okay, so you're very good at analyzing people. Uh, what do you think, you know, what do you have that allows you are, you, are you type A, are you very well organized? Because if I were to look at you on paper and I get your emails, you're doing a thousand things, but yet you execute really well. So what would you say, like, do you find great collaborators? Do you feel like you just, like, what's your edge? Do you not sleep? Do you do a lot of Ritalin? Like, what's, uh, what, is, what are some, uh, you know, things that people in the crowd could, could hear this because I feel like you're so advanced and you have this toolkit, which is a great book, which hopefully everyone will buy and leave reviews on Amazon. Um, but ultimately, you know, what can we do to kind of bridge the gap to advance ourselves like, like you? Well, I think the, the first thing to keep in mind is that when I started my business, I didn't have eight revenue streams. I had one revenue stream. And that was, that was just you know, creating marketing plans for companies. That was, that was the thing that I did. And that was, in fact, the only thing that I did for the first, you know, what? seven years of my business like it took it took a long time it's You're only seven year overnight success <laughs> that's right it's it's only in the last you know four to five years that i've opened up uh, other business streams and and it's because i made the decision to do so Re different revenue streams don't just happen you have to choose to want to pursue them but i would say that a, anyone can create more revenue streams in their business if they're, if they're thoughtful about it. And B, um, it's not useful to try to say, oh, well, I'm going to do 10 at once. I would, I would pick one or maybe two new revenue streams to focus on per year. Just, just, and one then, or two a year. Yeah, and then once you get good at it, then that's fine. It, it becomes you know, sort, of, sort of like the, the skill, like, okay, you're walking. Well, now you can walk and chew gum. You know, oh, now you can walk and chew gum and, you know, throw a tennis ball up in the air. Like, you know, once, once you're mastering the skill, you can layer on new skills. But so for, for folks who are listening or thinking about this, I would say for 2018, just say, what's your thing? What's your extra revenue stream that you want to pursue? Is it that you're writing a book? Is it that you want to start a podcast? Is it that, you know, maybe you're going to try to do some coaching? Like any one of those things is more than enough to focus on and go deep on. And one thing you talk about in the book about just coaching in general is a lot of times people have day jobs and they don't have the time or they don't they don't they can't charge fifty thousand dollars for you know get a bunch of clients for their coaching work. But you talk about how people can pilot and charge fifty dollars and build testimonials and build their base of customers. So I'd love for you to you know impart some wisdom around how to start things small, especially with coaching, where maybe it just makes you feel better because you hate your day job. And it's not about making a hundred, making that six-figure income to really uh, change your business. That that can come over over time and not have as much pressure on you to make this thing into something big. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there is a real misconception on a couple of fronts. One is that so many people think of entrepreneurship as an all-or-nothing kind of scenario where it's just like, well, I'm obviously going to have to quit my job, so and, and I'm not ready to quit my job. I'm going to work in my garage on weekends by myself, and my family's not going to see me. There's this mythology, right? Yeah. You, you hear about Google and Stanford and graduates that make these amazing products that 
just it comes out of thin air and it's all hustle. Like I, I hate that word hustle, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's like you have to tell people how hard you work, then you're maybe working too hard and you're not doing it the right way. So, yeah. So I I really want to to beat the drum of the. Um, the idea that, that you can, and I would argue should, be cultivating entrepreneurial side revenue streams even while you have a day job, even if you want to keep your day job, even if you literally don't want to do anything different in your life, you love what you're doing, create the entrepreneurial side income stream. A, it's a little extra money, which is always nice. Yeah. B, it is optionality. It is something that if you, if you need it, it is, it's there. And it's an extra skill set. It's, it's knowledge that you can bring back to your job. It's just one more thing that makes you a little bit less dependent, which is, I think, always a good thing. And there's a story that I tell in Entrepreneurial U about a guy who's well-known in the podcasting space named Pat Flynn. And he had a job in an architecture firm. And he got laid off in 2008 in the midst of the recession. And this would have been really bad timing. He was getting married in a few months. He, you know, was not making a lot of money to begin with. And, you know, the, the economy overall was terrible. So it would have been extremely hard for him to find another job. But it so happened that over the past number of months, he had been blogging, specifically because he wanted to pass the lead exam, if people know what that is. It's this green building exam. So he created a blog charting his progress in passing the lead exam. And he, he did it really for himself as a study guide, but he figured, well, you know, maybe other people can benefit from it. And so it had become quite popular because, you know, it's a good resource. So it, it started to get some traction on Google. So after a while, when he actually passed the exam, he thought, hey, maybe, maybe I should do something with this. Maybe some people would like this as an ebook rather than just reading it as blog posts. So, you know, it didn't take a lot of effort, right? Literally all it was, it was, it was stuff, all stuff that he'd put out for free as a blog, but he just put it all together as an ebook and he sold it on his website. And the first month that he put it out there, because his site had become so trusted and was so highly ranked in Google, he earned $7,900 from selling his ebook. It turned out that that was close to double what he was making at the architecture firm. And then a month later, he loses his job. And that was the moment where he, he could have panicked because all was lost with the career direction that he had been hoping to pursue. But instead, he realized, oh my gosh, I have something here that might even be better. And so he started to pursue that. So I think just having that in our back pocket yeah. can be pretty powerful. That's where we're similar. I love those stories of these people that accidentally fall into something. They do something online and they test it out, and then suddenly it just picks up. And seventy-nine hundred dollars later, this guy is, you know, a massively influential person in the business community around online marketing. And so these are the types of folks that you profiled, correct? Yeah. And how many people did you profile in total in the book? Fifty-ish. Fifty. And everyone you interviewed, did they get a at least a quote? They did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we didn't leave anyone on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, people are very sensitive with their egos. <laughs> um, and ultimately, you know, now that the book is out, is there any feedback you've gotten from people that caught you off guard or you felt like, wow, that, like I meant to write that and I'm glad it hit home? Like, do you feel like you've gone out and you've, you've gotten the market feedback? And uh, what, what's hit you really from the people? It's, it's been really great, which is amazing. I don't, I don't want to be too 
uh, self-congratulatory yeah, here. Yeah. But um, I mean, I am interviewing you for my <laughs> podcast in front of a crowd, so let's self-congratulate as much as we can. I mean, <laughs> right? Because we're gonna walk out on that street, and no one's gonna know us. We wait for our Uber, so we should enjoy this moment. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's been great. <laughs> yes, I've, I've managed to avoid the paparazzi heretofore <laughs> right. in my LA visits. Someone was live streaming TMZ to I don't know. I'm glad you put the phone away. Nice. Um, yeah, anything that really, like, you felt, because like, it's amazing to write this book, and then you put it out, you give birth to it, and obviously you did a great job of getting people to workshop the ideas ahead of time, so you weren't just blindly putting something out there that you didn't have feedback on, right? But what it, when you went and put it out in the wild, like, what has it been like, and what are some messages people have taken away that, that you, you've really appreciated? Well, I mean, so, some of the things that people have posted on, on Amazon have really been amazing, you know, in terms of, of their... Reviews, um, you know, a couple of people have said things essentially along the lines of, I've, I'm not even finished with the book, and it's already changed how I'm operating my business. And when I see things like that, I think that's amazing. Because obviously, you know, it's, it's hard to sell books, right? <laughs> it's uh, to, to convince people these days to spend $20, $30 on something when they could be streaming Netflix for $9 a month or, you know, just to take the time to invest in this 250-page project rather than looking on social media or doing something that is um, just instant gratification. It takes a lot to get them to buy it and then it takes even more to get them to read it. And if you can accomplish those two things and then actually have it mean something to them. That's, that's just ascending to this uh, incredibly high ladder in today's society, given the choices people are faced with. So it's, it's very meaningful to see something like that. Yeah, um, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, he, people were comparing Netflix to HBO when it first launched, and he, he's reminding me of his quote, because he said, he started off, they were like competing with uh, HBO, and then they were positioning themselves as competing with cable, and then he said, we're competing with everyone that's battling for your attention. NFL football, uh, you know, other streaming apps, and reading a book. So really, you're fighting against uh, me checking my Facebook right now and trying to finish the book. So, yeah. so ultimately then, if you, know, you, you talk about you, know, you, you had this mastermind uh, over the summer where you workshopped the book, like, how important was it for you to get feedback from real people before the book came out? And do you recommend that for writers or people making products to really workshop the, the things they create in advance? Well, to be, to be clear, the book had already been written. Okay, but what I, what I, I do think that workshopping the ideas is, is good. What I was especially interested in was learning how to workshop how I talked about the ideas. Uh, because I knew that in order to make a promotional push for Entrepreneurial U, it was going to be very important to get a lot of the publicity centered around launch week. And that meant that I started doing podcast interviews even as early as July so that we could have a huge swath of them hit all during launch week. It was probably, it was about, I'm, I'm doing the calculation now. I, I believe it was 80 interviews wow. that I did prior to the book being released. And the vast majority of them hit in the first two weeks. So it was important for me. I, I was recording all these things 
And I didn't have any experience talking about the book because it had just, you know, it, it hadn't even come out yet. So I wanted to be able to sort of test it with my students to see what resonated with them, you know, what terms I should use, what seemed most compelling, so that I could learn how to promote it effectively. And it worked. If you have 80 people booking you in a podcast. <laughs> um, so then, you know, we're going to open up for questions in a minute, but the final question I have for you is, do you have an email list of, you know, tens of thousands, 50,000 people? They read you regularly, and like I said, you have a... 97 Amazon reviews, probably 100 Amazon reviews after this uh, talk tonight. Um, and, you know, you're on 80 podcasts. So you're very well connected. And how do you, what are three skills that you have cultivated that you think allow yourself to be able to get a community competitive advantage? Where obviously you're likable, um, so you can't use that one. But what are three things you think you do really well that lend itself to collaborating with a lot of different types of people? That's a, a nice question. Thanks, hot, Ryan. Hot seat. I get compliments with my questions always. They're like, oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, let me open up. Um, but, yeah, what are three traits that you think you, you have as characteristics that allow that? Well, you know, if we're talking specifically about building communities, one thing that I can think of, there's a, there's a guy that um, I have gone to in the past, you know, a number of his events, and he's a, a really uh, smart guy, smart author, and has had done a great job of bringing a community together, but something that I really didn't like, and this has been very conscious in me about trying to do something different, is this guy just had an almost pathological tendency to always need to assert that he was the smartest guy in the room. And so he would bring all these people together, but it was always like, well, we know who the boss is. Perfect. And if anybody became like a little, a little too successful, or if anybody was like, but wait, what about, uh, you know, there'd kind of be like this little, <laughs> this little smackdown. And there was just this, just this little bit where you, you really got the sense, and, and this was somebody who's very smart and very worth learning from, but he, he didn't really want his people to fly. <laughs> and... I I found that um, I found that really off-putting as a character trait, and so for me, the people around me, I really take joy in seeing them succeed, and I want them to succeed, and I want them to make connections with each other, not just through me. So I really love you know trying to matchmake, you know, not necessarily romantically, but, uh, you know, to make connections. And I'm always trying to encourage people to connect with each other and get to know each other and uh, just looking, looking for opportunities. I, I really want, you know, I, every organization takes on the characteristics of its leaders. And to the extent that I am able to kind of lead a community uh, of, of people who have, you know, been participants in some of my courses or the recognized expert community, I want to make it really clear that it is not tolerated for people to be mean to each other. I, and, and the thing that is celebrated is when people collaborate with each other. Like all the time, there's, there's people who, you know, they're blogging for Forbes and they interview other people from the community for it. Or they have a podcast and they bring on people uh, from the community on their podcast. And I'm always pointing that out and celebrating that because that's what I want. I want. I want the rising tide to lift all boats and I want them to be thinking of it 
that way, that they are part of a community that's helping each other. And if there's one thing that I can enforce, if there's one thing that I can be, you know, really dictatorial about, it's not going to be spending my energy like, like that guy being like, oh, I'm the smartest. The thing I want to be dictatorial about is, no, you fucking help each other. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, you're more, that's what you're, I like You're to cool do. with, like, you can hit the game-winning shot, but you're cool passing as well. You're like LeBron James, right? <laughs> you get triple doubles. You know, you get rebounds, you get assists, and you get points. And you just don't need to score 50 points a game, right? Because that guy that rubbed you, or we, let's say a guy or gal, we don't want to... Uh, make this person obvious, but that they, they rubbed you the wrong way because they were trying to get the attention and bringing it back to them. So you're saying you like to distribute equally and then you're a, you're a dictator when it comes to just not being mean. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, so thanks again so much for coming, guys. I know in LA you have to really stress about traffic and I appreciate it. So thanks, bye. Thank you, everyone.